1: Scourge facing America from within the president takes the opioid crisis very seriously
0: The kid got snagged at the border the courier
1: it Took a year of undercover work to get this far maybe it's dangerous to press a big sale now Give what choice do we have Our product will be the first truly non-addictive painkiller What the hell is going on?
0: all the addiction centers are lighting up and then by day 10 they're dead i'm looking for my son
1: were you aware of any issues with your son
0: like what hello and welcome to the matt's movie reviews podcast i am your host matthew pekovich and this is episode number 336 Out now in Australian cinemas and available on digital in the U.S. is Crisis, a crime drama that delves into the far-reaching impact of the opioid epidemic, exemplified through three stories involving law enforcement, the pharmaceutical industry, and the lives of everyday Americans. A character-driven story, masterfully crafted and performed, Crisis is a timely and important movie, and I'm happy to say that joining me now is the writer and director of Crisis, Nicholas Cherokee. Nicholas, I thank you very much for your time today.
1: Oh, Matt, it's a pleasure to be here. And um, I have to say uh, two things I don't even know how to process. Number one, that you've done 336 episodes, which is uh, I've only done five movies. And so that's extremely impressive. And then number two, your very kind words on the film. So thank you. And I'm I'm glad you enjoyed it.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I was saying just now, it is an important movie. I mean, this the st- statistics in regards to the op- um, opioid epidemic in the States. I mean, just staggering. It's like 100,000 deaths per year. I just read this morning that um, in 2019, 10.1 million Australian uh, Americans aged 12 and older misused op- uh, opioids in that year. I mean, it's, you know, there are many different films that could be made uh, uh, about the epidemic. What's interesting about your film is that it kind of, it covers all its bases, you know, did you know that when approaching a movie like this that you needed a wide ranging film to cover like a really wide ranging problem?
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I had always loved these films that look at things from multiple viewpoints, Mm. you know, and tell different stories. I mean, sort of the progenitor of that type of cinema, you know, I'm sure it goes back before him, but you know, for me was Robert Altman, Mm-hmm. Um, you know the seminal film Nashville, of course, um, and I had always loved shortcuts. Um, when Fred Easton Ellis and I wrote a film called The Informers, a sort of ill-fated production, um, but you know we had taken a book of his short stories and interwoven them. Um, you know, and so it was a form that was always very exciting to me. And I think when I began uh, as a filmmaker in the '90s, um, you know, it was it was more in vogue than it is today. It, you know, you had. 21 grams. You had LA confidential um, traffic, of course, a wonderful film about the cocaine trade. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, so you had, you had quite a few of these movies, um, and, and they kind of faded away. And I think the, uh, you know, the public got more used to seeing these multiple narrative tales on television. Um, but I always thought, you know, that cinema is so powerful. Um, and of course, you know, being able to see theatrically and, uh, not being confined to the television. I thought, I felt like, hey, it's time to see another interlocking narratives movie. And that this, it really suited this subject because, you know, as you just said in your description, we were able to look at it from different, different points of view. The Evangeline Lilly's character, wonderful uh, performance in the film, I think, um, you know, as a user and as someone who gets personally involved. Army Hammer, um, you know, playing in a DEA officer trying to uh, stop smuggling. And then Gary Oldman up, you know, we almost saw on the top of Mount Olympus uh, Mm -hmm. dealing with the pharmaceutical manufacturers um, who are really, you know, in many ways the source of the issue because it is their product that gets diverted um, or causes people to become dependent in the first place.
0: The three stories in the film, I found that they were perfectly balanced amongst each other. Um, That balance, is that already achieved in the script or is that something that where the editing really comes in and gets that balance correct?
1: Ah, uh, well, so, so it's a, it's a perceptive question. Um, you know, the script, so the way I write it's, um, I don't know that I'm too great at it. Um, it's kind of like, you know, cave spelunking or something. Mm. Um, I go in and I say, okay, I've got a general idea. I want to do a film about this topic. Now, who are the characters? Um, and then, you know, there's a, there's a kind of alchemical process where you're, you're trying to excavate the stories and so, so I wrote each story as its own thread, you know, maybe halfway. And then I started merging them together in the script. And, uh, you know, there was some things that seemed very obvious to me, some things that were a little bit of trial and error. Um, and then, okay, so now we go shoot. I like to do a lot of rehearsal with my actors and, and mm-hmm. give them a lot of input into the story. Um, so, okay. But now we go in the cutting room and we were in the cutting room on this picture for, you know, about seven months. And I had some really wonderful minds helping me, you know, of course, my editorial team. Uh, but then I you know, would bring in other filmmakers, Mark Forrester, my friend Taika Waititi, you know, different people would come in and, and we'd screen it in small audiences. And then yeah. we'd start to play with the narrative. And so we would say, well, hold on a second. You know, we see this thing here, uh, you know, Lily Depp. Well, shouldn't we maybe we see her a little bit earlier. It helps inform this, this character's motivation or you know, hey, these two sequences uh, you know it's a little th- doesn't it feel like it's a bit slow here or you know the energy's lost? okay well how about if we move well we can't move it because that was a day night So you know in the editing um, you know you you of course are constrained by the the practical ramifications of the footage that you have. but it's amazing where there's a will, there's a way you can really um, shape it and, and it takes on new meaning and forms new connections that you didn't necessarily, anticipate when you were just sitting in your bedroom writing
0: it. The research you've done with this film, you talk to people at the LA Times, you also talk to detectives at the LAPD. You know, when you go into a film like this and you start doing research and start talking to experts, are there perceptions you had about the epidemic that were challenged or perhaps even confirmed um, after all the research is done?
1: Well, I think the biggest um, the biggest thing, you know, this, this started – a little bit in a personal way. I had lost a good friend of mine to opioid abuse, you know, mm-hmm. over a decade ago. And what, what, what the thing is, is that we didn't understand it back then, you know, it was really only through the times groundbreaking reporting, looking into, uh, some of the pharmaceutical manufacturers that we began to understand. Um, oh, let, let's say this America, you know, has a history a legacy of demonizing the addict, you know, and saying, Oh, those are bad people, you know, why don't they just stop? And, and so, when I did the research, what I found was, um, you know, these substances are, in many ways, are known to to create dependence, even in their so-called safe brand label. You know, uh, maybe twenty to fifty percent of people who, who who take an opioid, um, you know, the industry will tell you the number is much lower, but but the Times found a lot of research indicating that uh, large numbers of those people could become dependent even in the cycle that they're prescribed. So that was a big, uh, wow moment for me. And then saying, okay, well, then how did this drug get so pushed out there? And that's when we found a lot of, um, you know, understanding that, that there was a great marketing effort, um, to suggest that these pills were very safe and that they Mm. should be used, you know, to cure the common headache or whatever. When in fact, you know, the medical industry had controlled this for so many years. I mean, we've had, they were giving morphine to dying soldiers on the battlefield in the civil war. Uh, so, you know, it, that, that wasn't causing millions of deaths um, until the last 10 or 15 years when all of a sudden there was a massive overprescribing. Um, so I think, you know, that was fascinating to me. Um, and, and the fact that, that there was no real oversight into this. So you can see the source of this epidemic um, you know, in some ways comes from a lack of uh, active citizenry, um, you know, and, and some of our governmental institutions may be failing us. But ultimately, you know, that's something we have to take responsibility for uh, if we want to move forward and make progress to change that.
0: In the film, Army Hammer plays a DEA agent and something about his character is that his sister is in the throes of heroin addiction. Did you find in your time collaborating with law enforcement that that kind of thing was common amongst them that perhaps they had a family member or a friend that was addicted or had, you know, passed away from addiction and that was a motivating factor for them in the profession that they choose?
1: Well, absolutely. And, you know, I, I was surprised to learn that because some of the origins, you know, as a, as a writer, sometimes you, you, you write something, but you don't make it. Um, but you come back later and you use pieces of it. I did this in arbitrage, my last film. You know, when I was a very young man, I had written a novel about someone who does something corrupt on Wall Street. I never published Mm -hmm. the novel, but I had a kind of great central scheme in it, and I used it. So here with this film, um, I had long ago worked on a television series about uh, undercover DEA officers, and, and that was all based on real people, and in doing the research from that, I found that indeed... That's often a reason that people go into uh, drug enforcement because they have family members, you know, or or people who are close to them that have struggled with substance abuse, and um, a large number uh, of, of of these these uh, law enforcement people do. Um, so I think you know there there is a personal motivation for people who are in the drug war because it's really it's a difficult, dangerous, deadly you know business. Um, and, 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 and it can really take a toll. So I think, um, you know, it's not surprising that people have something close to home that they want to make a difference about. And I want to say also one of the things that was very interesting to me, as I got to know these law enforcement guys, that a wonderful consultant, Steve Opferman, who had, you know, we modeled this all on real events. So there's a real cartel, a syndicate he took down making counterfeit fentanyl and all, all this kind of stuff. Uh, but you know, I'm uh, sort of surprised that uh, you know they're they're not necessarily these you know super anti-drug or anti-drug culture uh, people. You know it's it's a more nuanced approach, especially in the DEA. You'll find a lot of thinkers. You know a lot of uh, a lot of very smart people. Um, you know, and they want to inter interdict uh, at the source. Uh, You know, and stop the real flow of of very dangerous things like fentanyl. I mean, that's you asked me about surprises. Fentanyl was another big surprise. This extremely potent um, chemical compound, uh, you know, that that is making its way into cocaine and uh, counterfeit medications and, you know, little just even micrograms of it can be fatal. Um, so very dangerous, very easy to get up until a couple of years ago, you could go on Alibaba.com and order some precursor fentanyl and have it shipped over from China. Uh, yeah. so, so, so I couldn't believe there was this whole, you know, not the dark web, like just almost the Amazon, uh, yeah. you know, let me get some fentanyl. So, um, so all of that was very surprising.
0: The most interesting story I think is the one involving Gary Oldman's character. He's a biologist. He takes on a, a pharmaceutical company who's actually funding his lab he does research for them they want to put out a new drug that they say is um free from addiction um he finds in his results that that's not the case there's a, a big kind of battle that happens there that kind of con- that kind of thing in regards to pharmaceutical companies using p- college professionals college labs to do research on that product is that something that's very very um uh, something that quite happens quite a bit in the states
1: yeah well um you know, again, based on a lot of research, uh, you know, I had some wonderful uh, advisors on the on the pharma side, both people who, who work, you know, in managing uh, drug discovery labs or um, uh, pharmaceutical companies um, or testing companies. Um, and then uh, um, one of my producers, in fact, is a biotech entrepreneur who had sold um, a, a biotech company. So I had a lot of good minds around me. And as I was doing the research What I found was, you know, uh, the patent royalties in America are very valuable, right? You Mm. come up with some type of drug or something, you can have 20 years of income from it. Um, So uh, a lot of scientific discoveries are made inside universities, um, and then the university will end up getting a piece of the uh, revenue, and it can be, you know, it can be extremely significant and become a major part of their endowment. So I think, you know, that was a kind of fun uh, area for me to explore. I love Greg Kinnear who plays university Dean in the storyline. Um, he's an old friend and he's, he's such a warm, wonderful guy, but to put him in this role of a very conflicted, you know, do I do what's right for the university? Do I do what's right for the people? Um, yeah. you know, have I sold my soul? Um, and, and I, you know, I found that that did mirror, uh, a lot of what I found as I looked into the subject.
0: Um, I have to ask, what's the Gary Oldman experience like? He's hands down one of the greatest actors of our, of our generation, any other generation, what is it like to direct him in a movie?
1: Well, it, it's a wonderful experience. And he was, you know, he's a producer on the film as well. He was the first person I went to with the script. I, mm-hmm. um, I had met him right around the time of Darkest Hour, and we were talking about another project. And I wrote this as the topic took on more urgency in the media and also for me personally. I continued to have people who got impacted by opioids and so I brought it to him and right away, you know, he jumped in and he was like, I know about this, you know, I know about this world. I know about addiction. Um, you know, I think this is a very worthy thing and I think we got to do it fast. So let me, let me jump on board and I'll help you make the film as well. You know, help you get the money. You can get other yeah. actors. And, and so he was a great pillar of support in that way. Richard Gere had been very similarly uh, effective and helpful when we were doing arbitrage. Um, so sometimes you meet these people who are really just kind of, Champions of something and and help you get it together. Um, from a from a performance side as an actor, um, you know it, it's it, it, I have to say it's almost like what I imagine driving a Ferrari. You know, he's so responsive to uh, to direction and to being able to modulate a performance. You know he has these classical theater like capabilities where you can give him an intention. you say, okay, confront, I want you to confront Greg. Okay. Now, can you confront? But in the middle, withdraw, and then boom—he can. It's like cornering on rails. He can just move. Yep, got it. Okay, let's do that. Okay, Nick, what if we did? You know, and add in these layers. Um, and so it was really exciting uh, to just be witness to that. And and you know, it's like you're you're conducting a Stradivarius player. Um, so very exciting.
0: You know, something I really love about *Crisis* is that it's a film that deals with characters that have ideals um, whether right or wrong to have a moral base to uh, to them. It reminds me very much of the, the films of the 70s. That those are the films that I think a lot of people really to look back on and still love to this day. I know you you are a big fan of those movies as well. And you know, once upon a time, the films like Serpico or The President's Man. I guess you could have described a day where the original superhero movies, because we're talking about characters that are standing up against something that's important to them. That's uh, often up against giants of, um, say, industry or or systematic giants. Um, and I think it's a film that really reflects that. Those films from the '70s—that the films that really, to this day, still really you know, inspire you in a way that you write and, and construct your movies.
1: Absolutely. Um, I think you saw. Um, you know, Hollywood's always had a uh, an interesting relationship with. Um, functional systems. And I think, um, you know, in the, you know, before we, we, we were of course affected by the production code, I think 1934 and 1935. Um, Up until that time, film had been a little bit lawless and a little bit lurid, Um, you know, and you have some amazing pictures from that period, specifically women's pictures. Um, Betty Davis. Uh, you know, there's one where she plays a, a woman, uh, an abused woman who, who heads to the big city to climb the corporate ladder, you know, and there's nothing she'll not do. Um, and so these were very exciting, dynamic adult themes, um, you know, characters who were very rough around the edges and who were usually fighting during the depression, some type of a very corrupt system. Then you had the Catholic church um, and the uh, uh, censorship board, I think Green was the, the censor. Um, And they came in and they said, no, no, we're not, we're not okay with this. Um, We're going to have to dial back. We have to have more conventional morality. Um, And so, so then you got restrictions, but filmmakers would always figure out how do I kind of imply or suggest 1968, I think was the end of the code and the films of the seventies, there was really this explosion of energy um, of, questioning authority, questioning power structures, taking the lessons of the sixties and the radicals, you know, the Panthers, what, what have you, um, and putting this up on display and really asking, where are we in our, in our, in our, in our national soul? And, and they chose to do this with these characters that really weren't typical heroes. They were almost uh, anti-heroes or, you know, uh, they, they had a different, they had their own morality. And you know you had Pacino in *Injustice for All*, Barry Levinson's picture. Yeah. Um, you know these 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 wonderful uh, wonderful antiheroes. So I love continuing that tradition, um, and uh, and I find those characters just to be so full of life um, and 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 standing up for their ideals.
0: And that's something I really love about your movie as well. And so for everyone listening, *Crisis* out now in Australian cinemas, out now in digital in the US as well, doing very well on iTunes. It's a film I could recommend everyone to watch. Um, I love this film, Nicholas, and I thank you very much for your time today. And hopefully uh, when it comes to future films of yours, we can talk in the future as well.
1: It would be a pleasure. This was so much fun, and uh, you really uh, asked different questions than everybody else, so I had a great time thinking it through with you.